there are just so many different ways of talking to the body, uh, doing the palpation. There's so many different techniques. There's this general listening. There's a local listening. You can also feel the, the yang rhythm, which is an expression of the qi. You can also feel the fluids. You can also feel the state of qi. So all of these can be used. All of them are very, very helpful in making the diagnosis, in finding the place to treat, and the amount of treatment that's necessary. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. The most transformative journeys are not those we gain through acquisition, but those where we have shed our limitations, ignorance, and willful blindness. Learning medicine is not simply the acquisition of theory, technique, and skill. It is also the wearing away of the misconceptions, fantasy, and wishful thinking that got us started on this journey. There's a rarely discussed missing element of learning. Mm, That would be unlearning. What we need to forget. What our families held as true, that isn't. The lessons learned on the schoolyard playground that have nothing to do with the matter at hand today. The way friends can share blind spots. Learning asks us to grow, not just into a larger version of ourself, but into an unimagined vision of ourself. It's not simply the process of accumulation, but equally so, a process of recognition and release, allowing experience that once was so important, but now threadbare, to dissolve away. Like shoes that over the course of time disintegrate little by little, we arrive into the future by wearing out the past. Practicing medicine is as much releasing misconception as it is acquiring a useful understanding, at least as much figuring out what doesn't work as what does. There's a shedding that goes with learning, a dropping away of habitual thinking to make room for unfertile knowing, giving rise to a generative space of possibility with the fluidity that can receive a new impression. All journeys of discovery, they require tremendous loss, like a traveler at the end of a long journey would be unrecognizable to the traveler who started out. The imagined self is part of that shedding, the expectations, the hopes, wishes, and desires that launch us forward, they all have their day of reckoning. There is a freedom in being released from the constraints of the past, but it's disorienting in the moment as the comfortable sense of self is again and again surrendered. And that satisfying sense of gain must be released time and again to further growth and understanding. Consider the image of a pilgrim, threadbare with tattered shoes, disconnected enough from the past to have a foothold on the present. The feeling of being empty enough to be attentive, egoless enough, to have an unfiltered sense of inquiry, tired enough to dispense with useless pleasantries, and soft enough to be receptive without opinion or judgment. Our stories and stances are full of holes. The ego can only hold so much contradiction at any given moment, and it's ill-equipped for finding the thread of connection that is unfettered from a sense of consistency. Unlearning holds within it the opportunity to start again, and to risk the comfort of certainty for the potentials held within the unknown.
Learning medicine gives us structures and scaffolding for navigating the territory of healing. Our intellect and intelligence is absolutely required, and so is our sensing and our attention. Velia Wortman's parents tried to dissuade her from following a path of medicine. Well, that backfired, and she's been a student of the healing arts for decades now. Her love of medicine, sense of inquiry, and apparently limitless curiosity has taken her through both Western and Eastern medicine, and it would seem the more answers that she finds, the more questions she has. In this conversation, we explore the role of subtle motion and how sensing and attention can help us connect with aspects of our patients that can't find verbal expression and might also be easily overlooked with our usual East Asian diagnostics. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. 
I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. It's our patient's vitality that does the healing. And this is a conversation about engaging that vitality. Let's get into it. Felia Wortman, welcome to Geological. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so looking forward to this conversation because I suspect one of the things we're going to touch on is the stuff that's kind of intouchable, untouchable, let's say subtly palpable. It's an area I'm very, very curious about. So we're going to get into all of that. But I know from talking to you before we rolled some tape, there's something you'd like to share as a way of starting. I would like to start off with a poem from the 12th century written by a poet called Stonehouse, Shi Wu. And I'm going to start. A friend of seclusion arrives at my fence. We wave and pardon our lack of decorum. A white mane gathered back, patched robe loosely draped, embers of leaves at the end of the night, howl of a gibbon breaking the dawn, sitting on straw mats, facing in quilts, language forgotten, we finally meet. So I think we can end the podcast right here, you know, there's <laughs> nothing more we can say, right? There it is, we're done. Reminds me of that poem by Zhuangzi, which I do not have committed to heart, but something to the effect of words are something we use to catch something, and after we've caught it, we no longer need the words. Precisely. Mm-hmm. And I think we agreed we were going to talk about something that's difficult to put into words. And that's why I started off with the poem to warn our listeners of the difficulties we may have in expressing our ideas. It seems that poetry is very helpful for this kind of thing because there's something about the way that poetry can capture what is in between the words to give us that kind of a glimpse. That's absolutely right, yes. And so we're going to do the best we can at this, and of course we're going to fail at it, but it's part of the enterprise. I hope we can have some fun doing this. Well, I think we probably will. I mean, we're about to embark on talking about medicine, something we both love. Yes. And it's just fun to explore ideas with a friend. As a way of beginning, 
I am curious to know what ever brought you to medicine in the first place. You know, this is not the kind of stuff that we practice these days that any of us, I think, imagined doing when we were in high school or probably even in college. Well, interestingly enough, I come from a family of doctors on both sides. On my father's side, they're Anglo-Canadian. My grandparents were both doctors. And on my mother's side, which is Chinese, her father and her grandfather were also doctors. And my mother's, my mother's youngest brother, my uncle, was also a doctor. He was an orthopedic surgeon. So when at the tender age of 15, I announced that I wanted to study medicine, the first thing that my parents did, who were obviously traumatized from the fact of being children of doctors, whatever that means, you can interpret it anyway, they decided that they were going to put me off studying medicine. So they sent me to my uncle, who was practicing in northern Mexico in the state of Tamaulipas in Reynosa, and he had set up a series of so-called hospitales ejidatarios. He had been helping the small-scale farmers set up cooperatives, health clinics, basically, and some of these health clinics had operating rooms and delivery rooms and outpatients. So there I was, 15 years old, running around northern Mexico in the early 1970s with my uncle, who was an orthopedic surgeon, working in very remote areas with very, very poor patients and with very little equipment, delivering babies and doing reasonably serious orthopedic surgery. And I loved every single minute of it. And so I was not put off at all. So let me see if I have this right. They sent you there thinking, oh, we're going to get this out of her system. Yeah. She'll go do something nice like become a school teacher. But no. Yes, which was, no, it didn't work that way. I really loved it. And I got really hooked. What really got me was my first delivery. I was there to watch a normal delivery in rural Mexico in 1974 or whatever, right? Or even earlier, no, in 1971. And so that was that blew me away. So I decided I was going to study medicine at that age. And I graduated from high school with 16. And I was parked at the University of Toronto for four years until I was 20. I couldn't study medicine. I was too young. So I studied anthropology, which did me very well. And I, I studied Chinese and I did pre-med. And I went to a lot of demonstrations against everything, Vietnam War and apartheid and everything else, I think, which was the right thing to do at the time. And then in 1976, I got a place at a British medical school at the Royal Free Hospital in London. And that was used to be a medical school for women because women were not allowed to study medicine in Victorian Britain. And so they had a high intake of women. So we were 70% women in this medical school. That was the beginning. And in London, Michael, I got picked up. I'll never know whether they were working for the Chinese government or not, but I was sort of adopted by members of the Society for Anglo-Chinese Understanding. And you can imagine in the 1970s in London, these people were old China hands. They had all been in China, some of them on the Long March. They had been to China back and forth, even during the times of the Cultural Revolution. And so my brother and I were suddenly invited to the motherland or the Vaterland or whatever you want to call it. The Central Kingdom. 
I went to China in 1978 as part of a delegation of workers and students. So these old China hands, these are Anglos. These are not Chinese. They were all Anglos. They were all Anglos who had been on the Great March. Or had been part, they had been in China before and during the Second World War. That is extraordinary. And they had connections to China, so we were able to travel to China. This was during the time of the Great Leap Forward. At this time, that was my first exposure to Chinese medicine. We were in Nanjing, and we were in Hangzhou, and in Shanghai. And the whole month's visit, or six-week visit, was heavily orchestrated. So, of course, we only saw the best of all the hospitals and the best of of TCM and the best of the rehabilitation clinics, etc. I think we also visited a lot of factories <laughs> at that time. Probably. And communes. And we were in several, in each city we visited a commune, which of course is unthinkable because communes no longer exist in, in modern China. It's, I was just saying you were there at an extraordinary moment of time. It was very strange. The Great Leap Forward, the now forgotten Hua Kofeng, was in power. This was his brief. It was a, an interregnum between Mao Zedong and, and Deng Xiaoping. And it was a r remarkable time. And I came back to London, and uh, this was 1978, and started looking around for places to study acupuncture, which, of course, in London at 1978 was very difficult. There was only one teacher, that was Felix Mann, who had studied, I believe, in Taiwan. And he was teaching his own form of acupuncture, and it was hideously expensive. I couldn't afford it as a student. Now, was it this trip to China that sparked your interest in acupuncture, or it was? Yes, it sparked my interest in acupuncture. And you've had this other incredible background, including studying anthropology. How would you say that your study of anthropology influences the work that you do today? I think it helps me see ourselves as practitioners from the outside because we're kind of a tribe or a clan. It helps me understand a lot of the structures within acupuncture community and how these communities work. Some of the models, however, I must qualify this. I studied anthropology at a time when Marxism was the dominant social construct that you fashion or the philosophy that you used to create your models of society or understand society. Marxism is out. You, can't, you won't find any Marxist professors anymore. So this is interesting because you studied in the West, and yet anthropology was looking through the lens of Marxism. Absolutely. Isn't that a little bit curious? It was extremely curious. And it had its, especially the, the form of anthropology that I studied, had been very heavily influenced by the, the school in Chicago. And these were small nucleus who had studied in the 1930s and the 1940s, and they had influenced many, many uh, subsequent anthropologists. I also studied with a student of Margaret Meads. Oh, lucky you. And Ruth Benedicts. Yeah, very, very interesting. And it helped me understand all, also, you know, what kinship is like and how how culture can serve as, or what, that culture is sometimes a filter or a lens through which you view the, the world. 
Well, it certainly is. And when I think about Chinese medicine and practicing Chinese medicine and literally the worldview, the lenses that we look through when we're approaching our patients with Chinese medicine, it's a whole different language. I'm not saying we're speaking Chinese. Yes, Chinese is another language, but those lenses and filters, the ways of thinking about the body, the spirit, the mind. You just used a word from the anthropology realm that I hadn't thought about, but I think it fits, and I don't know how it fits. It feels like it fits, and that word is kinship. There is something about kinship in Chinese medicine, and I don't know what that connection is right now, but I heard you say it, and it rings true. It's that that, that gong yin, that resonant thing that, that just happened. And I stopped studying anthropology at a time in, because I, I wanted to study medicine. That was my main drive in life at that time. I felt it like a kind of a force going through me. I stopped studying anthropology at a time that medical anthropology beca- started coming up, right? And comparative medicine systems. So I kind of keep up with that. It's interesting, but in a way, I'm glad that I did not pursue that career. I was asked if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I even got a scholarship to go to study anthropology at, at Johns Hopkins, which would have been marvelous at the time, but I'm glad I studied medicine in the end. Well, one is looking at it, and the other is doing it. Yeah, exactly. And so speaking of that, I want to wind a little closer to our topic in hand that is so difficult to talk about, but we're going to attempt it anyway, and, and that is how we use our senses and how we use our knowing, and especially how we use our not knowing. Because patients come before us and who they are and what is truly going on and how that's constellated and what they really want. All of that is, you know, it's always a mystery in the beginning. And it's our job to help them to the best degree that we can. There's an element of doing in our work. We are there in service of our patients. We are there to do. We are there to benefit. And yet, when it comes to some of this subtle work, like you guys are doing with engaging vitality, there's a big element of not doing. There's a big element that, has, it seems to me, has more to do with being than doing, and yet both of these are necessary. And that's entirely right. But before I answer your question completely, I'm, I'm going to digress slightly. Because after I graduated from medical school, mm. there were 10 years when I didn't do acupuncture. I didn't learn more acupuncture. I was not exposed to more acupuncture. And during this time, I really consolidated my medical knowledge. I also learned Western naturopathy which is really big in Germany. I moved to Germany, and in Germany, all the GPs, all the pediatricians, a lot of internal medicines do natural medicine, and Western natural medicine is very complex in itself. And then in the 1990s, I started studying, because it became possible, I started studying acupuncture, and then followed by Chinese herbal medicine, followed by nutrition. So by the time 1995 rolls around, I had this huge body of knowledge. It was like three different languages in my head. Western medicine, naturopathic medicine, which is huge with herbs and different water cures and poultices and all the rest. And then this huge block of Chinese medicine. 
And so in 1995, I finally had my own practice. And you have the patient in front of you. You have all this knowledge. You don't know when to begin. You don't know which filter to use, right? Yes, exactly. What is going on? And <laughs> I had studied by then with lots of different teachers, Chinese teachers. I had studied with uh, Ted Kapchuk, with uh, Dan Bensky, with Giovanni Machocha, with Jeremy Ross. I mean, these are all well-known names, and everybody had their own style. And then I started studying also with German teachers, Barbara Kirschbaum, for example, and Volker Scheid. And suddenly, I not only had these three languages, but I also had all these dialects in my head, right? So. <laughs> Everybody, everything's going on. And I was very, very fortunate at this time to have met Dan Bensky because these were the early days of engaging vitality. And this is the hour where it was born, right? Mid-90s in Europe. And Dan Bensky brought this idea of palpation as a way of just simply finding out, using an osteopathic technique, what is going on in the body, number one. Number two, helping you decide, based on your palpation, what you're going to do. And if you're going to do acupuncture, where you're going to put the needle. And if you're going to do herbs, he also helps you. He also helps you decide, with engaging vitality, what herbs you're going to give. Because you know which organ is, is affected and how. And then finally, and really, really important, because especially after having then, I had gone to China and studied acupuncture there and come back, the problem of overtreatment. When do you stop treating? So all of these things you can sort out with engaging vitality. And you can filter out a lot of the useless information, which is not going to help you. You're thinking patient has a stomach ache. Western doctor thinks, ah, this must be a tumor, right? This is kind of, so we, you know, MRT. The naturopathic doctor thinks, oh, well, you know, this is this homeopathic remedy. And the Chinese doctor is thinking, oh, liver is attacking spleen, right? And the patient may have something completely different. It may be pain radiating from the back because the patient has a slip disc, something like that, something very simple. And you're going to sort that out simply by feeling the patient. And the body's going to tell you what it is. So this was fabulous. It was great. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Du Mai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. 
So, like many things, easy to say, maybe not so easy to do. And I've been practicing since 1995, and Dan's been teaching it since 1995 as well. He started teaching it in the very early days at Siam. Yeah, so it, it's been something that he's been cooking a long, long time. And the other thing about it is that it not only helps you decide what the treatment is and where the treatment is, but more importantly, I think, at least for me, it's a way of gauging, and I think you alluded to this with over-treatment, but it's a way of checking for yourself, how is the treatment going? Yeah. Am I getting a response with this needle? Is it the response I expected? I've got an idea in my head of what might be good for the patient. That's just an idea in my head. If I can get some information from the body itself saying, yes, that's helpful, or no, that's not helpful, that takes the guesswork out of it. That being said, that being said, we're talking about some very subtle sensing here. And so I have a question for you. This is a question that goes through my mind all the time as I work on refining this. I'm listening. The question is, how do you discern subtle motion that you're feeling from your own wishful thinking? This is a very good question. And I think, Dan, when Chip was alive, when Chip Chase was alive, he's also responsible for, Chip was responsible for refining some of the teaching techniques for engaging vitality because not all of us are innate osteopaths like Dan. Dan would frequently ask Chip, how do we know we're not making this up, right? What we're feeling. And it's very easy. You touch the table. You touch the treatment table. Treatment table shouldn't be moving unless you're, you're in Mexico City, right? Where there's an earthquake every day or, you know, on the San Andreas Fault in California. Table shouldn't be moving. You touch the patient again. Oh, my God, I can feel the movement. They did say that. Now that you mention it, I did hear them say that. Yes, thank you. I don't know how I forgot. So that's one thing. And also, there are just so many different ways of talking to the body or doing the patient. There's so many different techniques. So if you remember, there's this general listening. There's a local listening. You can also feel the, the yang rhythm, which is an expression of the qi. You can also feel the fluids. You can also feel the state of qi. So all of these parameters can be used either in combination or individually. And all of them are very, very helpful in doing all three things, in making the diagnosis, in finding the place to treat, and engaging the, the amount of treatment that's, that's necessary. And also making sure that you're getting a feedback, that you're not making it up. And as Dan always says, acupuncture isn't just putting needles into people, right? You just don't put the needle in and then leave it at that. You have to find the right place. And the right place is not what the Atlas of Acupuncture, even Dan's esteemed Atlas of Acupuncture, his translation, tells you where the point is because the points move around all the time. Of course. It's just a roadmap. It's just a roadmap, but helping you find the precise location. And then once you get in there, you can feel the different parameters. You can see what's happening in, in the body. So this is extremely ex exciting, and it's been now a 25-year-long trip of engaging vitality. So, and with lots of excellent results. 
So for people who may not be familiar with this, or maybe not familiar with some of the subtle palpation, do you have any suggestions or any thoughts about how they might begin to approach using their senses in this way? That's a very good question. I think one of the main things is to be in the moment, concentrate on the patient, concentrate on what your hands are are telling you, and not imagine that you have to do your laundry or write an email or anything like that, not be distracted. And it's it's this whole question of being present in the moment. So I think that's the basis for everything there. And then second, I think there are lots and lots of different techniques that that you can use in order to increase the the awareness in your hand, whether you're doing Qigong or you're doing Tai Chi Chuan. It's simply to feel or enhance the feeling in your hands. I think I don't want to plug uh, what we do, but I will, uh, which is to, to join us on our sessions because we offer lots of training and it's very simple even use on the internet to learn some of these palpation techniques we've been quite successful we've been doing this for the last 14 months using zoom and we were amazed by the results so this is a curious thing isn't it something that is so present and in the moment and usually person to person in the same room here you are working with this very subtle stuff over Zoom, and the results have been extraordinary. Yeah, and we can't explain it. At the March last year, when we realized that the pandemic was going to keep teachers like Marguerite Dinkins and Dan Bensky in the United States, and they weren't com- going to come here to Europe, uh, specifically to Germany and to Holland to teach, we twisted Dan's arm, or specifically Kaylee Brennan twisted Dan's arm to get him to teach online. He realized that resistance was futile after a few very decided phone calls from Kaylee. And we started teaching online. And we've even run hybrid sessions, for example, with patients and students in Portland. And we were supervising. And the supervising was done by people in Holland and in Germany and in the United States, for example, in Seattle, watching students work in Portland. And we could see on the Zoom that the needle was whatever, one centimeter off. Simply, I can't explain how, but we we knew that the needle was in the wrong place or that the hand that was trying to feel the thermal layer, which is an expression of chi, was too high and all the rest. I cannot explain this. Dan and everyone else was just blown away, Michael. It was incredible. And this has been repeated so many times, including recently at annual conference in Rotenburg, where we presented very simple uh, palpation techniques. And we were doing this with people who were in Athens, uh, Greece, and in France, and Germany, and the main teachers were in Seattle in their pajamas, teaching groups of students. You know, on the internet, and students who were who were in Europe, it was amazing. It was absolutely incredible. We don't know how it works, but it worked. And I guess it's something about us being connected and as practitioners. Maybe it's kinship because we're all brothers and sisters in in acupuncture. Who knows? 
Who knows? I cannot explain. Again, I'm, I'm struck by that kinship word, and you just brought it up again, and I hear you say it, and there's something in me that goes, that's right. I don't know why it's right, but it just goes, that's right. And the other thing, I always get nervous when I start talking about things like quantum physics, because I don't know anything about quantum physics, except it's weird stuff. But there is this idea that in some way, we're all connected anyway. You can have molecules or uh, electrons, rather, at like opposite ends of the universe, and they're somehow connected. So if one is spinning one way and one is spinning the other, and one reverses itself, the other one will too. I don't know how they figure this stuff out, because I'm not a quantum physicist. But there are people in that hardest of the sciences, physics, talking about these bizarre kinds of connections that from our usual place of looking and being, it just doesn't seem to make sense. And yet we know for ourselves, well, here's an example. Sometimes I put a needle in and I just know it's wrong. Yeah. It's just wrong. Now, it might be the wrong point. It might be the wrong angle. Or again, like you guys talk with engaging vitality, it could be off by just a millimeter or two. Or maybe it's just the way that I put the needle in and I wasn't attending in quite the right way. And if I just hang out with it a bit, something else will happen. There's, there's that as well. Well, I'm going to say kinship here. But again, I think we're also talking about gangin. We're talking about resonance, how things are connected to each other in ways that our conscious, rational mind just doesn't have the capacity to understand. There's all these aspects of our brain. There's all these aspects of our body that are just working away doing their thing. Our, our intestines are peristalsing. Our hearts are beating. Our cells are respiring with whatever they do. None of that is in our conscious purview. I agree. And this was something that I was noticing in around 1995, even, you know, after having studied with Giovanni and with Jeremy Ross, because their form of acupuncture was also very subtle and they were very, very good, right? But there was something missing. And one of the things that Dan and Chip and Marguerite have helped all of us do is that you can actually quantify this, right? You can actually measure what's going on. You can actually say, I can feel this and this was this much. And there was a thermal layer that, that was whatever, five centimeters. And now after putting in the needles in the right place, the thermal layer has gone up to what it should be at, or at around 30 for a young person. We also do things in the uh, spirit of treatment being a call and response. We also do things like after we've inserted the needle, look at the tongue again, check the tongue yes. again. Absolutely. And you check then the other parameters, the young rhythm or the height of the thermal layer. Then you put in the next needle, which you originally thought you should put in. And that needle still feels good. And then you check the parameters, the tongue gets better, the patient feels more expanded, the blockage that you detected before in the, the local listening is gone. All of this seemed to me, after I met Dan, much more systematic, right? Because Giovanni would just put in the needles and then sit down and write notes and then not really pay attention to what the patient was. He'd just figure, okay, good, you know, the half hour is gone and that was it. But with Dan, it's all doing call and response all the time. And one of the things that's really surprising is you start off treatment with 
maybe a four-needle combination, which I learned, for example, from Wang Chuyi. And I want to do the four-needle combination. And then after one needle, I realize, oh, sh- damn, it's over, right? <laughs> you know, that's it. You know, there that's it is. all I need to do. Yes. Oh, this is... It's embarrassing. You know, I keep on thinking, what's the patient going to think? You know, it's like one needle, like, what the hell? It's just one needle, what the hell, right? But, you know, the tongue is good and, you know, everything is going. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should do something else just for show. You know, it's. I have been in that same boat. It's a wild ride when you start doing this kind of stuff Um, and teaching this stuff on the internet. (laughs) I agree. It gets weirder the more you get into it, huh? Yeah. And one of the things is, I'm going to tell you a very, really strange story about engaging vitality. In the last conference that we had in person in Rotenburg was 2019. And we got Dan to come over and teach from Seattle. And he taught four days, two of which he taught a class with 60 persons each, okay? And it was huge. We had 60 people in a basketball gym in, in Rotenburg of Datawa, which is a very little town. So this was like their biggest venue. And there were four table trainers, including myself, who were assisting Dan, who was teaching. And we were split up into groups, and we had to work at different tables. And I had a fellow teacher from South Africa, a German guy who had gone to to South Africa. And I examined him, did the whole engaging vitality protocol, which we had been taught by Dan before to show him. I used him as a demonstration. And I found that he had a hip blockage. And he had certain changes in other parts of his body, which I could measure using the young rhythm. Okay. One of my fellow table trainers came by later on and he checked this guy again and he came to exactly the same conclusion, even without me telling him anything. So I thought, okay, well, maybe. All right. So we all go back to our seats and about 15 minutes later, one teacher who's Bart Vinches from Holland does a demonstration and he asks for a volunteer. And this guy from South Africa walks up to the front as the volunteer. And Bart Vinges does the demonstration. Dan is sitting next to me. And Bart finds exactly the same thing that I did and Felix did. Exactly the same thing. And put it all together into this beautiful Xiaoyang disturbance diagnosis and, and had the same points that we did. And it was incredible. And Dan is sitting next to me, and I said, Dan, I can't believe this. This is ridiculous. And he said, no, it isn't. I've taught all of you to hallucinate in the same way. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, the question is, is is it a helpful hallucination or not? Because if it's helpful, let's use it. It was completely helpful hallucination because – it was a typical thing. He had tinnitus. He had a blocked hip. It was just beautiful. It was incredible. Uh, and this kind of stuff we see happening all the time in other classes that we run here or in Holland or in the States or in Spain, even. this It's, it's amazing. Yeah. So you're getting a certain amount of re- 
replicability. Yeah, easy for you to say. All the time. Yes. This is really, really important. And also, it's something that you can quantify. And it's something you can also show the patient. You can, you have a little hand mirror. You can tell, show the patient, look, your tongue looks completely different to what it did before. So I want to make a comment about tongues. And then I want to tell you about someone who was just on the podcast because this, this connects in. I've been working with the EV <laughs> 20 years now, right? Because it was part of my introduction to acupuncture. I've studied lots of other stuff too because I'm just curious about acupuncture. And one of the things I've been studying lately is a method, it's a Korean method called Sa'am. And I want to tell you, tongues, when you're doing Sa'am, are mind-blowing. I mean, mind-blowing to the point of there's a thick coating, and three minutes later, there's a thin coating, and it's no longer wet. It's actually a bit more on the dry side. I mean, stuff that in school... I was told, no, it will take months for this to change. Minutes, minutes, seriously. And I think it's helpful. And one of the things that all y'all is listening right now, you might want to check people's tongue, regardless of the method that you're using. Be open to the possibility that there are things happening that you're not aware of. And you're not aware of it because you're not looking for it. Just go look. Just take your attention there. A lot of us will check the pulses after a few needles. That's a very common way of practicing. But do take a look at the tongue. It's Seriously. And when you start noticing these changes, photograph it. Because otherwise, you're going to think that you're making it up. Yep. But it really is there. So there's that. The other thing I wanted to mention, actually, as we're having this conversation, the, that show published this week, her name is Wendy Coulter. Yes. And she teaches people to do medical intuitive work. And there's some research that they've done where they've had medical intuitives that she's trained. I guess they all hallucinate the same way. Astounding replicability between people looking at objective, like you'll find problems on a scan type Western diagnosis. Yeah. Like up in the 80s and higher percent replicability. It's mind-blowing. So I look at these as that it's like nature is signaling to us. It's saying there's something here, there's something here. Wrapping our logical language using mind around it is tricky. But there's these other parts of us that seem to make sense of it just fine. Yeah, I agree. And I think it fits back into this idea of that you introduced earlier of quantum physics, right? Which I think that things, uh, the uncertainty principles, things that always be measured or determined or known, or if they are, they change, right? Before our very eyes. Yes. All the time. So we have to live with this uncertainty. That I would say has probably been, especially here in the time of COVID, probably my biggest practice on a daily basis to be a little more friendly with uncertainty. <laughs> yes. And just to put an underline on that, I, I finished reading a book recently called Richer, Wiser, Happier. And how does that work? Well, it's a book about investors. So this guy interviews like stratospherically brilliant investors um, who are all very strange cats, right? If you're going to be able to work at that upper echelon of being able to invest other people's money, 
you're clearly an odd human being. And it was a beautiful written book. It's not a how-to book. It's more a look into the minds and the hearts of people that every single one of them talk about this, dealing with vast amounts of uncertainty. How do you keep yourself together, especially when you're dealing with your money and other people's in the numbers that trail in six and seven digits? How do you deal with uncertainty? So for me, it was ostensibly, it's a book about thinking about investing. At its heart, it's about how do you cope with uncertainty? What practices do you have? How do you orient yourself to that mystery? Well, one of the challenges that I've been facing in um, the last 14 months in probably the world's most severe lockdown, not as severe as in China, but pretty severe, which we've had here in Germany, is the uncertainty that I could feel in people, right? I could feel it in their bodies. They, they changed their whole yang rhythm, the fluids, uh, the shape of their chi, and it also shaped my treatment of them. And inevitably, you get this, I wouldn't say contaminated, but the uncertainty creeps over into your body as well. My way of dealing with this as a therapist were, were two things. I did more palpation than ever before. And I really, this grounded me. This made me feel, okay, I feel this uncertainty, but I'm going to get down to the basis of it. Just by touching the patient, I think they also felt less afraid, less uncertain, because many of these people hadn't been touched by anybody else during the lockdown. They hadn't seen their relatives, they were singles or whatever. They weren't hugging their friends. They weren't having dates or anything like that. And then the other thing that I really concentrated was on the idea of tong, on connectedness, because tong is the ultimate goal of any treatment that we make. And it's not only connectedness with the patient, but I also wanted to open anything that had been blocked or, or shut or anything in my relationship with them that had been blocked or shut. Because in times of COVID, a lot of discrepancies, uh, a lot of controversies, a lot of conflicts came up in the society related to the way we behave in times of a pandemic, whether we're going to wear masks or not wear masks, whether it's correct what the government has done here in Germany. And now in the last six months, whether you're going to get a vaccination or not. And Despite all these conflicts, I still wanted to, to remain connected, to be tongued, right, with them. And I wanted to open up to tongue anything that had been closed due to fear or to misunderstanding between us. So these were the two main things that, that I've been concentrating on in order to overcome this problem of uncertainty. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique 
beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing weld points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, I think the uncertainty, which is always there when you're a living creature in this world, it just goes with the terrain of being an embodied creature in this world. There's that. And then, like you say, your practice has been recently touch, more touch, attending to Tong and using it as an opportunity to learn more about what Tong is. Yep. Which is such an interesting character because it does mean to open or it does mean to be clear in a way, but it also means to communicate. It's not just clear, but there's something happening within that clear channel. And, and maybe this is what's happening in the Zoom sessions that you've been talking about is that there's this aspect of Tong that is, it goes between people. It's non-local. Yep. You can get traces of it on a Zoom call. You can get traces of it in just someone's voice. You can maybe get traces of it simply by bringing them to mind, perhaps. I don't know. And also just watching what they're doing, right? In these teaching sessions that, that we were having, we could see whether or not their treatment was tonguing the patient. It was amazing. But it was also, we could see that they were tonguing the patient or not, because we were also connected to them. It was fantastic. So there's something to watch for in a treatment. Is there that sense of tong? Is there that sense of openness? Is there something flowing? It's often, I find, palpable in the room. You know, there's times, and I suspect most people listening to this have had this experience. You come back in the room and you can taste the stillness in it. You walk in the room, you can feel it. Likewise, sometimes you walk in the room and you go, uh-oh. Something just feels off. Usually not in a treatment room. Usually people are settling. But, you know, sometimes like just in regular life, you walk into a place and you go, nope, I'm getting out of here. Yep. I mean, we have that kind of feeling. I want to come back for a moment to over-treatment. Okay. Yeah. Because you brought it up a bit earlier. And it is something that I suspect not a lot of people think about. I know that the EV folks think about it. I know that, that with the Sa'am stuff that I've been working with, there's definitely an, a sense that you can do too much, and too much is not a good idea. It can be confusing to the body. But a lot of times we think more needles are better. You know, and it may not be uncommon in certain traditions, 20 needles go into the body. Yep. For those who don't have the concept, but maybe you're curious about looking into it, how would you notice that overtreatment is happening? What's happening on the table? What's happening with your patient? And beyond that, what are some of the things that you might see happening to your patient, say a couple days after the treatment, if they've been overtreated? That's a really, really good question, Michael. And I think the most obvious signs of overtreatment will be found in the tongue, interestingly enough. So if you had a reasonably rosy, plump tongue with a little bit of dewy coating, 
before you inserted the needle and after you inserted the needle, you have a scalloped tongue that's dry. You're already over-treated. And I remember in, in the early 90s, seeing a patient together with Dan, later I realized needed buchong yi tongue. Dan put in one or two needles and we went out of the room to discuss the case. And we went back in after 15 minutes. And Dan looked at the tongue and he said, oh my God, we already knocked this guy out, right? And the tongue was completely scalloped. This is a guy who, who was a shiatsu practitioner and also an Aikido, I think, whatever, third Dan, right? He was quite a guy, but he had had some terrible operation and was completely depleted. So what happened to this guy was that three days later, got off the treatment table and he said, no, I don't feel good. This was no good. And then three days later, he phoned me and he told me that he had had three days of headaches. So this is something that happens for overtreatment. Very common. The tongue changes in a negative way because of the scalloping. You've depleted the chi. The tongue got dried out because you've depleted the fluids. And then the poor patient gets off the table and feels crummy and then develops other symptoms, right? So this is overtreatment. And then using the parameters that we have for engaging vitality, you realize that the thermal layers decrease, that the yang rhythm is also decreased. Sometimes you also feel that everything is going a little gummy, that the fluids are all getting thick and viscous and the patient just doesn't feel good. And also you can also feel changes in the pulse. And interestingly enough, in this Bain, one very important thing that Dan has taught us. If the patient gets off the table and says, oh, fabulous, look at me, you know, I can move my shoulder, everything is gone and great, then you probably overtreated, right? But if the patient gets up and says, oh, feels a little bit better, and then you know that you've given just the right amount of treatment. Yes, because now the body is going to be able to do it itself. Exactly. Yes. Now the organism has the capacity, and organisms love to express their capacity. Organisms love to express their capacity, and all that you're doing with the acupuncture is tonguing the patient. You're just opening it up, doing anything more dramatic than that. And there's this wonderful story from Dan Bensky in the very early days when he got to Seattle from the Boeing executive who showed up and he had had a lymphoma. He was a 70-year-old ex-executive. He had had a lymphoma. He had all this radiation, all this therapy. And all that he wanted to do was to live without pain and be able to look after his flowers. And he drove something like four hours from wherever he was living to come and see Dan Bensky in Seattle with his wife, who had basically lassoed him thrown him into the back of the car and dragged him to Seattle. And the guy is sitting in front of Dan. Dan takes the history, looks at his tongue, and then does the engaging vitality protocol, puts in one needle, one needle at lung seven, and then realizes he's already overtreated the patient, takes the needle out. <laughs> guy had driven four hours. Yes. What the hell was that? Guy turns around to his wife and he says, Erna, you owe me one. Right? <laughs> 
leaves the practice, you know, in a big huff in disgust, right? She did. Yeah. And Dan thought, well, okay, that's it. You know, I'm never going to hear from this guy again. And guy, they drive back to wherever they came from for hours. He goes home and he takes a very, very hot shower for a long period of time and goes to bed. And the next morning he wakes up, he can move his head, he can lift his arm, and he can look after his flowers. And that was this was the guy who sent everybody to dance practice. But this is the famous story, Erna, you owe me one. <laughs> so. Well, it's so easy to think that more is gooder. And I think about Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Of course, just right is what we're looking for. But we often have an idea of what it's supposed to be. And then our patients have their own idea sure. of what it's supposed to be. And, and as we're having this conversation, I am thinking about all the patients I've had who got off the table. Maybe they were okay. I mean, sometimes I see people get off the table. I know they're better just by watching how they move. And sometimes, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't know if that was so helpful. But sometimes we say acupuncture doesn't work, right? Oh, yeah, acupuncture didn't work for them. Acupuncture didn't help. I'm wondering how often that is happening, not because we didn't do enough, but because we did too much. Yeah, absolutely. And this was one of the things when the TCM clinic in Kretzting, which is a town here on the Czech border, started 30 years ago. They imported the model from Beijing and planted it on the Czech border here in Germany. And they brought something like 25 acupuncturists and uh, about 10 herbalists with them. And the, the sick funds, the normal insurance paid for it. And we sent normal German patients there with all kinds of different, mostly pain diagnoses. They were wiped out. These people couldn't move after two days of treatment. It was between these huge decoctions that they got and the acupuncture treatments with 20 to 30 needles, these sturdy Germans, these Teutonics, they were immobilized. They couldn't get out of bed, right? <laughs> there was, you know, they didn't have any more pain, but they couldn't move, right? <laughs> they were just so chi depleted. Chi wiped out. And they had diarrhea from the decoctions, right? Because they were huge. They're, they couldn't digest them. I can remember Steve Clavey talking about a gynecology teacher that he had when he was in China. And one of the things that was unique about this guy is that he made sure that his herbs, I don't know if you could say they were flavorful, but they had a sweetness to them. They were easy on the digestion. They were easy to digest. People didn't really mind taking them because he, this guy, his teacher made sure to support the spleen and wasn't putting giant like dynamite blasting cap type formulas together is putting together things that were gentle, gave the body a chance to acclimate and, and gently change. I think about most people, we don't like being told what to do. And maybe that's also true with treatment. If we're telling the body, you have to do this, there, there might be an aspect of the body that's like, yeah, right, watch this. Well, there's a difference between giving the body a, a little nudge and shoving it, right? Yes. <laughs> Nobody likes to be shoved. Well, I mean, some people might, but you have to pay extra for that. No, and especially, you know, I was thinking about the patients that had gone to Kutzting who had had chronic pain. They had a system of their pain, and they had kind of like this architecture, this building that was constructed out of pain. And 
I guess the acupuncturists from China wanted to shatter it, right? Or the herbalists wanted to completely blow up the building, you know, the wrong strategy. They, they should have started by inviting some architects and some interior designers, right? And then get the builders in very carefully and trying to convince the patient very gently then that some refurbishing needed to be done or the body, right? The patient's body, but this blasting technique is very bad. And I remember in this vein, Dan went to teach at a conference for, I believe it was Chinese medical practitioners who are Chinese, right? You had to be Chinese in order to be in this association in Vancouver. And he gave his talk on engaging vitality. And when he was finished, there was this very polite silence. You know, I guess they were all stunned, right? And somebody put up their hand and said, do you mean that if I do a 12-needle Richard Tan-type protocol, I have to check the tongue and all these parameters after each needle? And Dan said, yes. And then there were no more questions, right? It was like, you know, oh my God, you know. So it's this thing of not just sticking needles into people, but paying attention to what the body is trying to tell you. Well, and to some degree, I think we practice in a way that's commensurate with who we are. And so if we're curious about this tongue thing, yeah, and we're looking to communicate and we're looking to open and we're wondering, hmm, I just did a needle. I wonder what that did. That's very different than they've got a shoulder problem. I'm going to stick a bunch of needles in their opposite ankle. You can get it to work. It can work. Yeah. There is that. And I think this is one of the beauties of our medicine. There's a lot of different ways that you can go about it. But you have to keep on checking, right? I think it's helpful if you keep on checking. And even if you're doing something like a Richard Tan treatment, you could ask someone to move their whatever the joint is that isn't working so well. Yeah. And maybe put needles in up to the point where it starts not working so well again. Yeah, I agree. Because at a certain point, it would go the other way. If if you've over-treated them, the range of motion might get worse. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just, I find myself saying that as we're having this conversation. going to have to investigate this in my own clinic. But I suspect that's a way of checking. Yeah. And one of the nice things about engaging vitality is that it's inclusive. So if you really want to do a 12-needle protocol, then you have to pay attention every time and you have to make sure that the needles are in the right place, not just where you think the points may be. And that's one thing. And you can also do engaging vitality techniques or the, the protocol if you're only doing ear acupuncture. For example, you can decide which ear is better and you can decide how many needles you want to put in into based on what your criteria are the range of motion and the different parts of the body and the thermal layers. And you can even do then Korean hand acupuncture based and then keep on checking using the engaging vitality. So it's very, very inclusive. And that's one thing I love about teaching about this because everybody has their own way of practicing. Yes. Well, it seems in any learning that we do, there's an awful lot of unlearning that goes along with it. Yes. I love unlearning. You love unlearning. Really? I love unlearning. I find it difficult. I've got my ideas, things I think I know, my little thing. It's like, oh, yeah, I got this. Watch this. Having to unlearn that, I often find myself in a very vulnerable space. It's not always that comfortable. Tell me why you love it so much. 
I find it a little bit painful. Well, because if all you're doing is working with certainty and you are certain that you're right, then it gets boring. <laughs> it's incredibly boring. I'll grant you that. Yeah, no. It, and working with uncertainty, it's kind of, you know, I find it kind of sexy, you know. I was wrong. I had the completely wrong idea. This patient's problem is not his liver. It's his diaphragm, whatever, right? And I'm wrong. And that's okay that you're wrong and that you, you got things that you're working with preconceptions. I find that very exciting. So it's a wild ride if you're talking to the body and not using your hands or using your senses and not using your brain all the time. It's fabulous. And it also, I find it's less exhausting than analyzing and thinking and using whatever traditional Chinese medicine, or as Dan calls it, textbook Chinese medicine protocols, right? Doing a one-hour intake. You don't need to in, in most cases, right? That's also a process of unlearning and having the courage to leave a, this huge chunk behind and just trust what your hands are and also trust your past, your instinct, your in, intuition, and also trust your experience. Although I think intuition is often a, a combination of past experience and knowledge, but that's a, that's a completely different podcast, mm. I think, right? We may have to come back for that one later. So, yes, I agree with you. There is that part of me that likes to hold on to what I think I know, but there is also the part like you. I call that part the scientist that's in me. I love science. The scientific method, I think, is one of the most amazing mental tools humans have ever come up with. A real scientist, and I think we could also extend this to say a true practitioner of medicine, this is happy to get a yes or a no, a right as a wrong. We just want to find out what is it. Yeah. And we're happy to follow it along the path as it reveals itself. And that's what's kept me going. I've been practicing medicine now for 40 years. It's incredible. And I never imagined I would, I would be practicing medicine so long, but here we are. And this insatiable curiosity about people and about medicines, about the medicine and about disease. I mean, I have a pathological interest in disease, like, oh, wow, that is just one fabulous abscess. Oh, man, look at, you know, look at this fracture. Oh, this is really amazing, disgusting tumor. I mean, it's just fabulous. It's great. And although many of my brothers and sisters hate me for this, I help, and I've had many discussions also with Dan and even with Chip about this, I help organize a so-called research day in Rotenburg the past 15 years, and I invite researchers from all over the, the world, mostly Europe, of course, then to participate. But we've had quite a few Americans in the past. And I think Chinese medicine is up to being researched. I think Chinese medicine is up to, can put up with a certain amount of experimentation. It doesn't have to be rats all the time. And I think some of the models for doing research may not be perfect, the famous randomized control trials. but a lot of what we do stands up to scientific scrutiny. Well, it should. I mean, if it's real, if it actually is real, and apparently it is because people get better, it should be able to stand up to some way of quantifying it. Yeah, I agree. Which is another podcast. Actually, we've had some conversations here. Richard Hammerschlag has been on talking about some of the research methods that he uses. And Lisa Taylor Swanson 
who does all kinds of research these days using nonlinear models and stuff that sounds really out there on the edge. That's what Chinese medicine is. That's the, you know the medicine that we practice is not a you know A plus B equals C. It's it's a much more cybernetic sort of enterprise. Yes, and one of my co-chairmen for the research session is a physicist called Florian Beisner, and his main interest is neuroanatomy and looking at all these areas of the brain. I didn't know these areas of the brain existed when I studied medicine 40 years ago when I was in the anatomy room 40 years ago. Every year they discover a new part. It's incredible. And he's been looking at all these using different imaging techniques. And the amount of communication information stuff that goes on in these areas when you put in a needle is amazing. And it's quantifiable. And it's you can photograph it, right? You can film it. It's fantastic, right? You can't make this stuff up, right? <laughs> no, you can't make it up. And fortunately, we get to play with it in our clinics and hopefully be helpful. Yes. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time together today. Same here. Thank you so much. Yeah, maybe we'll have to come back and talk about... Quantum physics and kinship. Let this ride for a bit and see <laughs> where this kinship stuff goes. I really appreciate you bringing it up today. But I feel like your sister already. You are my brother. There we are. <laughs> All right, sis. We'll have you back on and we're going to talk more about kinship. I don't know what that conversation is going to be about, but when the time is right, we'll be doing that. I'll be here. Okay. Thank you so much, Michael. All right. Take care. I spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid and a lot of it on the water. The type and direction the clouds moved versus where the wind came from on the ground, it told you something about the weather system. It was possible to smell a rainstorm that hadn't yet arrived, and I learned to see wind on the water. It's possible to get a good idea of what a summer afternoon would be like based on how it felt at 7 o'clock in the morning. Today, people look at their phones, and they think they know the weather. I appreciate Velia's perspective on sensing and the reminder that this kind of knowing is innate to how we've navigated the world for millennia. And while our modern medicine, with its fantastic imaging and capacity to look deep into our blood and fluids, are helpful measures, there is a sensing outside of words, much like being able to step outside and know a storm is on the way, that is a bit atrophied in our modern life. But the potential is there, should we choose to cultivate that capacity. And in this conversation, I'm reminded that our work is the work of a lifetime, and not knowing something, or not yet being skilled, it's not a deficiency, it's an invitation. And the process of exploration, it has its own rewards. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation today, and if you're interested in the work being done by the Engaging Vitality folks, you can visit them at www.engagingvitality.com. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, 
there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.